Hey, Whiskey Ringers, welcome to a brand new intro. First off, there are still a few bottles of our barrel single barrel rye finished in Armagnac casks, picked in partnership with This Is My Bourbon podcast. Check out the show notes for links to purchase. Second, I am thrilled to announce that I've joined the Bar Cart Co-op. This group of podcasts and shows has a show or multiple for everyone. I'll talk more about them in the mid-roll. Finally, there are still two $25 spots available on Patreon. These are the last two spots that will ever be open on that tier, so if you've been putting it off, grab your spot today. There are also spots available at the $15 a month level if you want to support, but can't quite commit to that $25 tier just yet. There's a spot in supporting for everyone's budget, and I truly thank you all for making this podcast possible. Hey folks, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today we're going back to Kentucky, and we're going to a place that I got to visit in November, which when I was down in Louisville, but I also got to meet uh, their distiller in September at the Kentucky Bourbon Festival. So I'm thrilled to welcome on Peerless Distillery with John Wadel and Ellie Reed. Welcome both. Thank you for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. And John, did I get the last name right? Wadel, yeah, yeah, you sure yeah. did. Not many uh, people get that first try. I know it's few and far between what I was listening to. So I was like, I've got to get this one right. Ellie, obviously your name is easier, so. Right. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, unless there was some Norwegian, you know, pronunciation of it that I wasn't expecting. But anyway, um, so jumping right into to Peerless, uh, because you've been uh, in a fortunate way, you've both uh, really, John, especially been been on a bunch of podcasts, done a lot of interviews. Uh, I'm going to skip a bit forward, really, to what, for the most part, what Peerless is today. Um, and not focus too much on the history, which is, uh, you know, listeners, if you don't know the history, one visit because it's worth the tour. It's worth the visit. Um, you can read about it on the website uh, and listen to a bunch of other uh, podcasts that have gone through it. It's fascinating and really worth uh, worth the time to listen to. But like I said, I just want to ask some new questions if we can. So jumping right in with a little background. So you're sitting in the middle of Louisville, you're on Main Street on um 10th or 12th 10th 10th yeah and so this is right on on main street on whiskey row where we've got a lot of experiences um a couple of distilleries but mainly experiences from different whiskey companies and the first question i want to throw at you is when someone's coming to louisville to visit especially a you know for urban bourbonism uh kind of visit what is the kind of first elevator pitch that you guys give to someone to say, Hey, you should really check out Peerless while you're down here. You can go for it. Go. Sure. I mean, we do things a little differently here. We are a sweet mash facility and we are a family owned distillery. We're one of few in the state of Kentucky. Um, we're owned and operated by the Taylor family. Um, so that's a huge point for us. And then we also use sweet mash. So difference between sour and sweet mash. Uh, sour mash uses 20% of your old product and you move it forward to start out your new mash. Um, we start fresh every single time. We're also a kosher certified facility. Um, so yeah, we just that we do things a little differently here and that we are family owned and operated. So that's a huge selling point for us. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, if, you know, if you're looking to stay downtown, because, you know, <clears throat> the other distilleries, they can be a little bit of drive out. You get the whole experience here. You know, we cook here, we distill here, we bottle here. So when you walk through um, 
what you see is what you get. Everything that you've ever tried or tasted from us has came right out of this building uh, right here in the heart of downtown. And like I said, you never know what you're going to get here when you come here. Um, like this morning, we came in. We had some little bit of mash issues, right? So as tours are coming through, you know, you get to see every little nook and cranny of this place, which I really think uh, goes a long way. Plus, you're liable to see Corky and Carson, our two owners, walking around. Corky loves giving the family history. So you never know when you come in for a tour. If Corky walks in, he's going to walk you through the whole family history. And then you're on a guided tour through our whole facility where you'll end up in the tasting room. And we have good single barrels here. You know, we do have some single barrels that we release only here at the distillery. Um, so it gives you a chance to come in and try something that you wouldn't necessarily see out everywhere. And uh, yeah, I should say, while I was down there in November, I did get to, I think I met Carson just very, very briefly. I definitely met Corgi because I talked to him for a few minutes, but um, Carson, I think was more talking to the uh, person I was with. So that was a little different, but uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, it's one of those distilleries on in Louisville that you can actually, as you said, see everything that's being done. And the fact that, everything that comes out of peerless comes from this facility is notable. Um, it's the only one on whiskey row. I think that that can say that, which is something. Uh, so uh, Ellie, as you said, you know, you're a sweet mash distillery, uh, arguably sitting in sour mash territory. Um, not even, even so not many sweet mash distilleries out there. You know, we think wilderness trace hard truth um, in Indiana, but very few. And, I wanted to uh, go back in the history just a little bit. So I've heard Corky say that the idea of the sweet mash came from his uh, father's military environment, you know, cleanliness, attention to detail, um, all of that. Beyond that, though, when the when the brand was being revived or thought about being revived, were there other influences that led Peerless down the sweet mash route? I also think another large selling point for them on Sweet Mash was the fact that the original owner, um, Corky's great-grandfather, Henry Craver, when the facility was started in 1889, um, he was Polish. So he was a Polish Jew, and they just wanted to keep that kind of alive, his history, his um, upbringing alive in the Jewish community. So uh, with being Sweet Mash, you can also be kosher certified. So we are a kosher certified facility. So I think that was their main selling point on that sweet mash. They also wanted something different. They wanted something that was um, not as common in Kentucky, like you touched upon. Um, but yeah, sweet mash just gives you more variation within your barrels. Um, it creates that consistent flavor. However, it allows um, the mash and the distillate to move into the wood um, a little more, open up some more of those phenol groups and allows those tannins to kind of break apart more so than um, most sour mashes as well as the phenol groups are provided by that higher proof range. So we enter our barrels at a 107 proof. Um, so with a higher range of that, you're gaining more flavor from your barrels, from your distillate, and from your mash. Gotcha. I'll be honest, I hadn't made the connection between the kosher certification, Henry Craver being Jewish uh, before as well, because I, I had a chance maybe last year or the year before to talk with um, the bourbon rabbi, whose father, I think, certified peerless. Uh, and 
the, the certainly anything that that's a differentiator is worth doing but following that conversation that i had with with him you know, I, I was thinking to myself there's not even a kosher restaurant in kentucky like in not even louisville like in kentucky period there's not a kosher restaurant <laughs> so why the need to <clears throat> have a a kosher certified distillery but connecting it with henry craver that makes a lot more more sense i think to me that there's you know a connection there now during uh you know the original peerless would there have been an opportunity or was there an ability to do sweet mash in the same way and i, I question that only because i'm not sure if there would be like the cleanliness standards and all the things that you have to do at that time uh, so I think back then, you know, they didn't really have the understanding like we do today, though, um, sweet versus sour mash, right? Where now we understand exactly what the yeast does and things like that. So I think that was just the way they were used to doing it back then, right? That's how they knew how to make a consistent product every time. Whereas fast forward today, we understand a little bit better um, <clears throat> when it comes to the biology and things like that behind actually fermentation and distillation and things. Gotcha. So when the jumping to the brand revival, were there um, any other things from the original distillery, the original uh, company that you were able to to revive with the company? Um, obviously, including the DSP number, but um, you know, were there yeah anything else, equipment, um, notes, recipe, anything like that you were able to revive with it? I mean, our DSP number is probably the only real thing that we were able to salvage from then. Um, most distilleries at that time were burned by the government um, to not allow any leakage of recipes of mash bills um, to get out into the rest of America at that time um, or get in the hands of bootleggers going into Canada. So. I mean, the original still went back to Vendum in Vancouver, Canada. And then um, we do have original photos of that time. Um, so a lot of our photos of, we have one photo in particular that I'm thinking about. It's of the original workers in the in Henry Craver's distillery, um, all centered around the Vendum still that they sent back to Canada. Um, and then they recreated it years later when Corky and Carson went and picked up their new still. So mostly just the photos and our DSP number are what we were able to bring and revive. Yeah, Corky and them had a lot of that stuff, but they did have a fire at one point in one of their old homes. So they did, they, they lost a lot of like, I guess you would say like memorabilia and stuff like that from his uh, great grandfather and stuff like that when he had the still. Um, but we were able, you know, once we opened up, we did, we were able to track down some of that prohibition whiskey too. Um, so we were able, the good thing is we were able to get some of the old bottles that had been produced by Henry Craver. Um, but they lost, like I said, a great deal of that stuff in one of the fires corking them had when they were younger. Yeah, that was the, uh, the roll up cabinet fire in the 1975. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I was going to ask that like, were there, yeah, I mean, were there potentially um, people focus on the mash bill and there are questions about that later, but I'm thinking too, like the processes that would have been used, the things that aren't just about what's in the bottle. So um, 
anyway, so, but that question kind of answered. So jumping into the, the processes and, and the products that you've got right now, um, John, you mentioned, uh, actually, I think both of you mentioned that you've got single barrels that are in the shop. And of course, single barrels go to other shops and other groups and such throughout the year, but there are ones that you hold in the shop itself. Uh, I was thinking about this while I was down there in November. Do you track this or, or do you have a, a way to find out, like, do you sell more to out of towners or uh, locals and Kentuckians coming in for those single barrels? I would say out of towners. I mean, that's a great deal of the people we see come through here. And of course we have our regulars that you see, you know, come in weekly or every other week that come in and see what you have. I would definitely say it's a, a lot more about a town people that come here to the distillery. And you're running through them pretty quickly. It was uh, something like three to five at maximum 10 days for every single barrel that you're running through in the shop. Usually every other week. Yes. We run through a single barrel. Which is, that's gotta be an incredible rate. Yeah, it is. And I think uh, I think why I love the barrels that we do here so much. So there's no difference between the barrels we put out in the market to the barrels we have here. The great thing about the barrels you come in and you get to taste here um, is I'd say you're tasting everyone's palate. Right. Because there's not just one person, you know, choosing these barrels. You get to taste the whole team from myself to Ellie, to Nick Clee, to Gwen, um, to Christina. Uh, there's several people that sit down and taste of these. So what I like about that is you get to come in and see what we enjoy, um, barrels that we like to see uh, go out to the market and things like that. So it's very exciting for us to put these barrels up front so they really get to kind of get an idea of uh, who we are and our palates. And with that, I think that was a good introduction to, or a good segue to just talking about both of your roles at the distillery. So, um, you know, Ellie, I'll start with you. You're the uh, distiller now. Um, I don't know if there's like an ad addition to that quite yet, a head distiller or such. I know um, the original no, master distiller, Caleb's left. So, but our, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So, no. Um, so yes, my role is distiller and I also do a lot of their mechanical work. So I'm, we don't have job titles here, which is what I like a lot about this facility is that we're all treated on an equal base and that we all take part in whatever we need to do around the distillery. Um, but I was hired on as their engineer and I was hired on as a distiller. So I do a lot of maintenance work, um, anything from changing out a valve to replacing a pump. So it changes on a daily basis and you never know what you're gonna come into. Like John was saying, we came into mash pouring all over our boiler room this morning. So I'm working on unclogging drains. Um, and then also this morning we had a problem with our doubler system. So I'm working on pumps and I'm working on cleaning out our doubler system. So anything from chemical research to recirculation of that doubler system. Never know. With your, uh, you have a background in chemical engineering, both bachelor's and master's. Yes, uh, did you, while you were doing your, your studies, did you envision yourself going into the distilling industry? I did not. Um, so honestly, up until the day Corky hired me, I still didn't believe I was going to be in the distillery. I actually came in to Peerless as a tour guide um, because I just wanted to put my foot in the door at a distillery. I've always loved bourbon. I've always loved the process of distillation. Um, 
So I had actually accepted another job with a chemical company um, upon graduation with my master's. And I was working at Fearless during my senior year of college and into my master's. But I was prepared to leave Fearless and then Corky was like, hey, so would you care to be our engineer? And I was like, yes, I would love to. Thank you so much. No, I never envisioned myself working at a distillery. Nice. And with, well, I'll leave, there's a second part of that question. I'm going to leave that for a little bit later. So, um, well, John, how about you? Um, yeah, so, I mean, my main focus here is I'm, I'm a single barrel curator. So, day to day, as Ellie said, I don't do too much on mechanical and operational sides. You know, I like to taste the finished product uh, pretty much. So, anywhere from uh, hosting people when they come in here to, you know, uh, I've closed down the still the last two days. Um, but like she said, it's just a little bit of everything. But my favorite thing is I love tasting the finished product. I love help making the batches that get put together to go out um, all across, you know, the U.S. So from a day-to-day -day operation, like I said, it could, it could vary from running the still to just tasting barrels to hosting groups to I go out and do a lot of market work, too, for the distillery and uh, things like that, too. So Every day is interesting around here, which which I absolutely love. And born and raised here in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, been in the industry now for about 10 years. Um, two years worth of bartending and things like that. And then moved over to the distillery side. Uh, when I met Caleb, our old master distiller, uh, he was the one that kind of brought me on um, here. And then just kind of worked my way up from there, from started off giving tours to doing the cooks. Uh, to running the still, to tasting barrels, to running the barrel program now. And uh, yeah, I had heard that at least as of 2021, that was when you kind of started working more um, in addition to your single barrel and brand ambassadorship roles, doing more on the production side uh, as well. And it seems like that's clearly still the case. Um, oh, yeah, I, I love it. You know, there's only 27 of us here. So you got to think that's from marketing to the tour guides up front to production. Uh, so, you know, uh, fortunately, you know, a lot of us get to wear many hats around here, which I, which I do enjoy. Definitely. Given, just jumping back to the, uh, to the still for a second, and I know this sounds like we're jumping all over, but there is a method to the madness, but, um, given your, your and Peerless's unique relationship with Vendome, uh, when it came time to design the stills and the still system for peerless um number one did they offer you a discount um and <laughs> two um what kind of input did they have in terms of of design and and you know basing it off of either brand new or or old designs that you had you want to touch on this one first or? okay so um the great thing is so corky you know he went into Venom, right we need a still and they knew nothing about Corky Taylor at the time, right? So he goes in there, tells him you know, what he's looking for, what he needs. And uh, uh, Rob at the time down there said, wait a minute, what's your last name? He said, Corky Taylor. He's like, who is your great grandfather? You know, he's telling the story. And Corky had no idea at the, at the time this, uh, what was happening. So he said, give me a second, I'll be right back. And I guess he brought the family, uh, the rest of the Vindham family, the Sherman family in there and said, you're never going to believe this, but because of your great-grandfather, he helped put our great-grandfather in the business. And that's how Vindham Copper and Brass became, was because of, during Prohibition, Corky needed the best welder, or Corky's great-grandfather needed the best welder 
um, to basically break down the still, take it up to Vancouver and reset and reset it up. Uh, so you just never know who you're going to run into, you know, a hundred years later down the road. So I think that helped build the relationship between us and Vindum um, to really help get our still built. Uh, and also, you know, there's a huge waiting list for these things. So it's not like you can just walk right in there and say, hey, I need one of these by next week. You know, it, it takes a while to build um, everything. And as you mentioned, not just build it, but to your liking. So how are you running your still? How many gallons are you pushing through there? How much production are you wanting to do? Um, so I'm sure that was a conversation that took a couple of weeks to really give them an idea of what, what we needed. That kind of just kicked off another question in my mind, which and thought of before the stills were moved up to Vancouver. Now, most of the kind of stories that I've heard of where the production went from the U S to Canada because of prohibition, um, it, it kind of goes around the great lakes region just because it was really easy to get into Detroit and, and Cleveland. No, not Cleveland. Yeah. And areas like that, um, in the kind of mid section, but Vancouver is quite a bit out there. In turn, especially for you know nineteen twenty, ish. So, do you happen to know why Henry decided to move up to Vancouver rather than staying closer to kind of the Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio borders? I don't think he moved. Henry Craver didn't move. He needed someone to take it all up on a train cart, so he still stayed back because he had a lot of businesses. So besides, you know, owning a distillery, he was a banker by trade. Sat on the board of the six different banks. He had. Um, movie theaters, he had hotels, um, all different types of things. Um, so that's why he was looking for someone to put in charge of that in order to take it up there. Gotcha. So it was more just kind of... It, it... it was more like, get it away from the government. We have to figure out who's going to take this. Where's the best welder in the area? And since we're pretty sure that he had some connections with the like bootlegging in that area and Vancouver was the closest location to bootleg alcohol at that time. So um, Vindum was out of Vancouver at that time. And now they're a Louisville based company, but we think it's mostly because he had connections in the area. I didn't know that, uh, yeah, the Vendum was located up there at that time. So I haven't gotten a chance to talk to Vendum yet, so I don't, know a ton about their history um really other than what i've heard just by still banking and people who have their stills and uh the most i've learned is probably through the story of peerless and and henry craver so um yeah that question just came to mind so i do have i do want to ask a couple of questions regarding mash bill i'm not going to ask what the mash bill is no point <laughs> it's uh it's it's not public and there's no point asking that one. So instead I'm going to ask more about like, well, you'll see. So first question is, uh, Alana Whelan joined the Scotchy Bourbon Boys or rather they joined her at the distillery uh, in 2022. And the question came up, of course, what is the mash bill, all that. And she made a point to say that the mash bill is not as important as people make it out to be. Um, obviously once you're over the 51% of whatever grain you want that whiskey to be categorized as it's not a big of a deal because using different kinds of barley or corn or rye are going to affect the flavor just as much as the mash bill itself will. So with that kind of background, 
your Rye was the first product to come out of Peerless. Um, obviously, post-revival. When with Rye as a focal product at first, it's worth asking where it comes from. So I wanted to know if there were thoughts on, you know, do you partner with particular farmers, particular strains um, of that rye to get a flavor profile that you want? Uh, I, I don't think, um, I think when we were looking for like, so if you're asking like, what do we know what type of corn, what type of barley, what type of rye we were going to use when creating this mash bill? I think it was more or less just taking the info from other great distilleries out there. Um, you know, uh, I wasn't a part of this, but I know, you know, Corky and spent a lot of time with guys like Jimmy Russell, uh, Michael Veach, right? But just going out and asking the great people that have been doing it already for years. I think the main question we always led with was, if you could do it your way, how would you do it? What corn would you use? What? Because a lot of times, you know, with those big ones, they're just doing it because that's what they're told to do. And I don't mean that in a bad way or any knock or anything. But, you know, fortunately for us, we can do anything we want to do, right? As we like to joke around, we just go right upstairs and ask the big guy uh, if we need anything or need to make a change. So I think everything that they were doing was for quality purposes. What's the best corn to use? What's the best rye? What's the best barley? So we get all our grain from consolidated grains. And fortunate for us, they're just 15 minutes down the road. So we have a truck trailer. We have these huge grain bins. We go down there. We check the quality. We fill up the grain bins ourselves and bring everything right back here to the facility. So I think uh, I think it was more or less just trying to source the best grains and try to keep it as local as possible too. And you've said uh, that the rye, at least, and we'll get to the bourbon in a second, but the rye is kind of high 50s, low 60s percentage without being... Again, I'm not asking the exact percentage, but high 50s, low 60s in rye content. Um, do you consider Peerless rye to be more of a Kentucky style, Maryland style, or a different style? Um, more so Kentucky style. We use, of course, more corn within our rye mash bill um, than, like, say, Maryland mash bills or anywhere else. Um, so probably just yeah. yeah more coarse material of rye consumption and i think we wanted to make our rye a little bit more approachable you know most ryes especially you know if you grew up drinking a lot more 95.5 very high rye content um so i'd like to say just a completely different flavor profile from most traditional ryes that i think our rye brought to the table and i'd say we're a bourbon drinker's rye uh, we're heavy with the corn and on the malt on there too as well. So while you still get the traditional notes of what a rye whiskey is, um, we have a lot of bourbon characteristics too as well. Because um, I see people all the time that come in here and say, I don't like rye. I'm like, hey, let us just try you on a couple ryes um, and see if we can't change your mind. So um, I definitely think our rye um, is like, I, maybe it's a personal belief, but I, I definitely think we led the way on how people approach and think about rye whiskey. It, I mean, it's worth noting when when the first ride came out, it was it was a noteworthy event. I mean, you had a two year old riot first, and a pretty pretty uh, agreed upon kind of generalization that rye ages faster than bourbon does. And so it was a two year rye. Uh, at the time, it was a higher price point, uh, and I remember listening to an interview that I think uh, Corky did on bourbon pursuit in 2019 and of course they were asking the question this was just after the rye had come out within a year or two about pricing and such i'm not going to rehash that question but 
I'm curious from a commercial perspective and from sales perspective, has that quote unquote criticism of the product come down as the ages have gotten higher, as people have tasted it more and realized, okay, it's not just, you know, if you forget the phrase crappy whiskey in a nice bottle kind of thing, it's actually could be in any bottle and be a nice product. Like, has there been a change in perspective? I mean, I think we still get a little bit of criticism by the price range. However, people are starting to realize that it is a craft distillery. We curate each barrel by hand um, and we age it in brick houses that we own. It's um, yeah, family owned and it is sweet mash. So that is going to take a little bit more time than a sour mash facility. So I believe that people are coming around to it. They realize that the age has gone up. Um, we've been around for nine years now. So we're starting to see that older product come through. Um, we're now averaging about five years per rye bottle. Yeah. And I like I said, our, our prices did go down over the years. Like obviously, you know, we started out coming out with a 124 price point on a two-year rye. Um, but I think once people get in here and actually see our operation and understand, we only make 10 to 12 barrels a day, roughly 2,500 barrels a year. Your bigger distilleries do that in a day. Um, but our main focus has always been quality over quantity, right? We know we're not going to put out the most, but we do try to put out the absolute best. And uh, I always say, you know, the price point, I think, definitely was like a talkative point when we first released. But I always like to think, and this is not saying like how it was approached, but in my mind, if I'm a consumer, a two-year rye hits the market, say say we charge 40, 50 bucks for it. How many people are going to talk about it? But you hit the market with a two-year rye at 124, that alone is going to get people talking, wanting to try it. So I think that played in our favor, the favor of uh, the price point being like it was, because I think that's what drew a lot of people um, to it. And the attention that we got from it was just a curiosity all right, what does this ride, two-year ride taste like at 124 a bottle? Um, and I think uh, I think that really did help us. And then we've made adjustments over the years to get that price point also, you know, down lower for out in the market. And the uh, the glass is a big part of that price. I know uh, I think it was like twenty dollars a bottle, something like that, just in just in cost alone. Um, which, but again, like you said, it's it's a unique bottle shape like you look at it you could look at it without a label and know okay that's a peerless bottle uh, which you can't really say for many bottles out there or for many brands out there um with the the bottle in particular uh your peerless has made it a point to use uh, an american bottle production uh, for the corks for the stoppers um and, and as much as possible you know during COVID, we saw a lot of brands struggle with maintaining inventory of dry goods. Uh, and I was curious, particularly when you have a bottle that is so unique like that, you can't just swap out a, a wine bottle or a general bottle for it. Did you face any of those same struggles? Um, not as I would say not as much as other people, because once again, we weren't dealing with a huge manufacturer of putting out whiskey bottles, right? The place we were getting our bottles from made like cologne and perfume bottles typically. Um, so a little bit, but it really wasn't because of shortage. It was more or less just because trying to find truck drivers, trying to, I think our biggest problem is more of shipping uh, than let alone being able to actually, you know, place orders. It was just uh, the shortage of trucks during covid I think is really what hurt everyone. Yeah, just more logistics problem than actual. Yeah. 
item. So, so yeah, I, I, that question came up because I don't ask everyone about that. Cause like I said, most people just don't have very unique bottles. So it's, you know, and no, that's not shade on them. It's more, more light. Oh, yeah. So, you know, well, Carson wanted something that wouldn't end up in a stock portfolio. So we trademarked the shape and lightness and everything on that bottle. Cause once again, as you kind of said earlier, we just wanted something completely different um, and resurrecting the brand. Something that really stood out on the shelf or on the back of someone's bar that would catch your eye when walking in. And it reflects our history and it reflects like our green bottle facility. It's of the pot still. So resembles that. And then it also has Henry Cooper's signature across it. So I think that represents the family. And that's exactly what Carson wanted for it to tie into the family aspect, to tie into our little production here. And I, I definitely think it showed. So the first year we came out, uh, we won a packaging award and it's broken down to best label, uh, best cap and best bottle. Uh, first year, someone won all three. Uh, we won all three across the board on that. So uh, I know that really paid off. And I know that made him happy to see that too. Awesome. Was there a particular uh, designer that you worked with to create all, I mean, all three of those, the bottle label and the stopper? That'd be a Carson question. I know he worked personally hand, hand, to hand, hand in hand with those uh, people over there to, in order to design and get that shape. Uh, and they went through several molds and designs before they perfect, perfected that one. So it wasn't like that was the first run. This one's good to go. Uh, it definitely took uh, some time to get that crafted just right. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm fascinated with that. We've had uh, a two design firms, now I think about it, on the podcast in the past to talk about their work with from the other side with whiskey and spirits and it's always it's a it's a little uh under the radar when you talk about that design because you're really thinking about the who you want to attract with that you know are people going to know that it's an homage to a pot still or to a doubler and um and the you know the stopper being i know the stopper has changed over the years but i think the original stoppers they were pretty hefty things like you could knock someone out with a stopper like that um, they, they were very heavy they were yeah. actual cork now they're synthetic so right. and the weight's the, not as bad right and you know the label itself does pay homage to the not only the original peerless labels but just the the prohibition style labels that you might see so that's going to stand out on the shelf as well particularly when it was coming out um what would it be what was the what was the first year that it would have hit shelves 2017 2017 july of 2017 is when we released our rye right that, yeah that's what i was thinking so i mean at that point there's not a lot of there's not as many uh historical labels if you will or historical looking labels out there so it still would have stood out there have been more people jumping on the train since then but still it 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 does still stand out um i always tell the, people no i was gonna say a good way to, to tell everyone always asks like uh what was your first run Anything from our first run and first release of that ride on the label itself on the front of the bottle, everything was handwritten. So that's a good way too. If you ever see when the handwritten's out there, that was the first dump, the first product we ever put out. Good to know. Now, luckily, uh, I, I had horrible handwriting, so I didn't have to sit in this office and write out thousands and thousands of labels. I mean, that's good to know. I, I don't believe that I've had the opportunity to try the original ones. It was a, that was like the year. 
the year before I really got into all of this and, and exploring and tasting a lot of things like I did. So I may not have had the first run. I know I had the first run of bourbon, but I don't think I had the first run of rye. So um, there's still probably a bottle or two out there. See if we can find one because I do want to try it. I want to see where you came from and where you're at now. It's fun to see the evolution of a distillery. And so in uh, jumping back to the process, the Peerless is, in the distillery's own words, it's one of the most automated distilleries out there. Uh, on par, I think the example was given with uh, Bardstown Bourbon Company, where you can you can control nearly, if not every step of the process. Um, even when you got, you know, a mash issue once in a while or the... Um, you know, something not working, it's, it's still controllable overall. Uh, John, when you were on distillers talk, you, you mentioned how the team tracks different variables like um, valve input, output, set points, barometric pressure. And I guess, I mean, you know, Ellie, this obviously applies to you as well. Um, when you're looking at these different variables, um, you obviously have more information than a lot of other distilleries have in the production. So how how finely do you end up tuning these different variables or different points when let's say weather changes or it's colder or more humid, you know, how do, how in depth do you get with that? This is your wheelhouse on this one. This is where, this, see, this is why I should, this is why we, we really needed her back here. Uh, she definitely, uh, with her background, it's nice to have somebody here. Well, without getting too technical, we, adjust our temperatures mostly on our pot still and our like we focus on mostly the middle of the column still um we adjust it by grain type so if you're producing bourbon you're going to want a more hotter column to process more of a thicker grain so corn is that thicker grain um and then you're going to want to lower that temperature um with the rye so we just focus mainly on those temperatures and then how those temperatures are affecting the rest of your still. We use the triangle method. Um, so we watch the middle of the still and then that rotates up towards your top still and then over to your valve, um, which will operate any steam input, output or water control and then back to the middle of the still. So just monitoring that, seeing how efficient your system is running, and then making sure that your proof is consistent. Um, we usually come off at a 130 proof off of the high wines. So just making sure it still tastes like you want it to taste. You want it to taste more like that sweet grain coming off for bourbon and more of a grassy note for your rye coming off. So pretty much just in adjusting those temperatures, you can pretty much figure out what adjustments you need to make depending on your barometric pressures, um, your weather changes, and then what kind of grain you're using, what kind of grain you're putting through that system. Again, unique. There's not a lot of distillers that can talk about this kind of stuff. So hence why I said before we started recording, get as nerdy as you want because we can handle it. <laughs> um, with the uh, the you know before I asked that one, uh, John, I got up at you on the spot, which was you mentioned on a steady pour, and this was this just came out last month, so this was a very recent podcast that you do have a couple of different entry proofs sitting in the rick houses, <clears throat> and um, 
don't know if you can tell us anything more about those, but I was just curious why the experimentation with it, like what's driving that? Uh, I don't think it was necessarily experimentation. So when we first started out, when we first were doing production, our entry proof was 123. We ran it that way for a little bit, and then we made the switch to 107. Um, but since then, we have um, we run a short production time of it every year where we use still at 123 proof. Um, and that's more or less, that's something uh, Corky and Carson want to do because, like I said, our goal is to eventually have, you know, a 10, 12-year product, things like that. Um, but all I can say is when we're saving those for a very special release, it could be three years from now, four years from now, um, but that's something they're kind of heading up and uh, we're all looking forward to it as well. Um, and I would say I'm not, it's not better than our entry proof we have now. It's just different. And um, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I can't speak too much on it, but yeah, we have, uh, we have 107 and 123. Those are our two entry proofs. But the 123 proofs are not something you're going to see every day out on the shelves, things like that. Those will just be kind of a short releases and runs that we do with those. I mean, last year we saw Makers Mark do, of course, their DNA series with the different entry proofs, and um, it fantastic it, too. Yeah, it was it was really an excellent experiment. It finally let people into those differences and how if you take all the other variables out and just vary the entry proof, what it could do, because you're able to vary to control the variables uh, just as much, if not more. I don't know Maker's back end, so I don't really know how much they do or do not, but because you're able to, I'm very much looking forward to the days when those both are available and you can compare the two. Uh, do you do the double, the um, two different entry proofs for both the rye and the bourbon or just one? For rye and bourbon, yes. Well, all bourbon. right. All right, so that's four pours then that we're going to be looking yeah. at when the time comes. Awesome. And so jumping back to, so with the production itself, um, in a similar interview, Corky and Caleb had described your method of small batch. And small batch was the first product that came out as well. When it was a two-year-old rye, it was a small batch. And then the first run of bourbons as well were small batch. The definition for peerless of small batch is six barrels. And obviously tell me if I'm wrong on any of this, um, but six barrels. But the there was one other point in that, which was that among those six barrels, there are three flavor profiles that are being looked at. And the um, host and podcast at the time didn't kind of dig into that a little more and didn't ask more about that. But I'm curious if you can speak to either both of you about the flavor profiles that you're looking for when you're creating these small batches? Well, uh, I would say we, we do more than six barrels. So our small batch, uh, and this is a question we get all, a lot of time. I know there's always some confusion out there. So our small batch uh, consists of about 30 barrels, typically is what we use. But what people have to also understand is like, uh, it's 30 barrels worth, right? So we're playing on 53, 53 gallon barrels that we use. So sometimes it goes a little over or sometimes we get a little bit under, right? So we got to make sure we make a batch big enough to feed the market for the request, but also not compromising any standards that we use here. So it's typically around 30 barrels is what we use for each and every batch that we produce. Now we'll say um, we always start off with a good foundation. So we're dumping maybe like 10, 12, 15 barrels. We'll let it sit, we taste. And from there, we're going to handpick kind of figure out what barrels need to go into this batch uh, for each and every batch that we do. Uh, and I'll let Ellie talk a little bit more about it too. 
Yeah. So like John said, we shoot for around 30 barrels in our batch and we start out with that base of about 15 barrels and then we hand select the remainder. Um, we also, as a team, we usually select an age range that we want to hit and then we build it off of that age range. So right now we're pulling from our 2017s, 2018s and 2019s. Um, next or this year, we're going to start pulling from our 2020s, which is incredible to think about. Um, but we're now hitting those ranges where we can start adding age to our barrels. Um, we can aim for six years on average, but right now we're aiming for about five years for a bottle. Um, and then we just focus on those flavor components after we create that nice base. We usually let it sit over like over a weekend, um, give it a nice mix, get all that char out of there. And then we'll let it heat up to room temperature and we'll taste it and then go from there. And then we just select them based on our their ages. And then we like to add, um, if it's weak in the start, we'll choose two or three barrels that will add a little punch to the front. Um, if it's weak in the center, we'll look for something that's really heavy in the center, but lacks on both ends. And then if we're aiming for the nice finish, that last mouthfeel, um, we always do it in three quarters. It's the start, the second, and then there's always a pop and then the finish. So we'll want like more of that heavy tobacco, um, nice char finish on that final palette. So we'll aim for barrels that look like that. Yeah. And, you know, we use, you know, as she was playing her, the reason we use, you know, just because we hit eight year old, everyone thinks like, oh, it must be an eight year old batch. Um, and anybody that's done blending or anything like that or mingling, as I like to say, because um, we don't source anything, is you get certain flavor profiles from different years. And a good example is that has anybody ever had our two year rye? Our two year ryes were known for having huge butterscotch notes to them. Um, but that falls off typically around that four-year mark we saw. You know, during between the transition of three and four-year-old rye, we lost some of those sweeter notes and developed more of like your fruit, your florals. So between you know your four, five, six, seven-year-old barrels, um, the reason you know we like to pull from each year is one to hold enough back to make sure we continue to have older age statements. But it's also because of the flavor components that come along with the different years as those barrels age too as well. And what I think you're thinking of when we first released our single barrels of um, rye, we broke them down into three categories. We called them oak and pepper, fruit and floral, and caramel and vanilla. And those is how we kind of used to explain the batching process. You know, we bring those flavors together. Uh, in order to create an everyday product, um, a very balanced product too, as well. Gotcha. That that is probably what um, what I was thinking of, and what the uh, the host of that podcast was thinking of too. I didn't know which one it was. That's not like me. No, but, that's okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, the uh, there was a there was one particular question. Oh, right. So as the um, as the ages grow, as you're noting, the the rye started with butterscotch, and at four years old. It, starts to get you know different flavors as it's going along um do you feel again goes for both of you do you feel that you've kind of gotten to the flavor profiles for each product that you want to get to or is there still more kind of evolution to come and is are you okay with that profile changing go ahead i think we're 
starting to see a shift in our profiles. Like John said before, we started out with those caramels and those vanilla notes. Um, now we're centering more on those floral and herbal qualities, mostly for our bourbons. Um, our rye's kind of take on that sweeter white fruit note. So I think only with age, they're going to evolve. Um, we found so many barrels that take on so, so many different qualities that we aren't sure how they're evolving, but the most common ones we find are those white fruits and those herbs. So I think in the future, we're going to start taking on more oaky notes, more tobacco forward profiles. Um, as one of our distillers, Nick calls it, um, he calls it peat, um, like a scotch and it does taste like peat. Um, but I think that's amazing that our product is so versatile and that we can create those new flavors and experiment with how can we mix florals and herbs and still kill off some of the sweetness with those heavy tobaccos with that peat note. Yeah, and a lot of us that work here, you know, we're we're learning as we go to. The one thing about this industry is no matter what you're doing, you're you're constantly learning. So for us, like I said, we've been here now for eight and a half, almost nine years here at this facility. We're 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 still learning the flavors that our rick house right behind us produce, right? Because this one's a brick rick house, it's right here on site. We also have another rick house out in Henry County that holds about 5,400 5, that is 10 basically, you know, it's the, the metal rick house. So it's really nice to see the different flavor profiles we're gaining uh, from each one of these rick houses. So uh, we're still learning as, as we move along to uh, what certain ricks, maybe what certain months, um, but we keep track of everything, all the data from when we're running the still. So we always have something to go back and look on to see if, can we find uh, any connection on why this barrel and why this batch tastes the way it does. Imagine. Uh, speaking of holding back a couple of it, a couple of barrels, a couple, you know, a certain amount each year, I know Corky's had the idea of releasing in kind of an eight-year-old Henry Craver bottle. And you said you're at nine years old now. You're obviously you need a little more time to gain the the stock necessary to do a, a, a release for that. But it sounds like that's very much still in the cards. Uh, you know, Corky likes to say patience build character. Uh, and like I said, the great thing about a family, a family run and owned distillery is, uh, you know, we make changes all the time. So do we talk about putting out an eight-year-old at one point? I know we were kind of talking about it, um, but Corky never likes to rush anything. And I think he trusts everyone's opinion and judgment here when it comes to it. Um, so I don't know. I'm not going to say there won't won't or will be an eight, uh, eight-year-old product release, but it could be nine. It could be 10, uh, just depending on, you know, how we're feeling. Fair enough. Now, with the addition of the new, well, it's not new anymore, but the addition of another Rick House at Henry County, you're now holding, it's got to be over six to 7,000 barrels, something like that, 6,000 maybe? I would say that's about right. Um, so, yeah, on that site, we would have about that range. Um, we have about 11,000 barrels in storage total. So this rec house holds about 4,000 and the other one holds the remainder. So. And we, we have rented out some other rick house. You know, in the beginning, all we had was this rick house here um, that, hold, that held, like I said, held about 
a little bit over 2,000 at the time. So we did have to play some barrels, obviously. I mean, if you do the math, you'll even realize, like, wait a minute, they they were producing a lot more in the beginning than what the rig house holds. So we did use some other rick houses, but everything we build is single story, five to six high. We don't build multi-levels, um, but we have had to rent out space until our rick houses were finished being built. Um, but we got a brand new one. We got about 30 plus acres. So uh, hopefully we'll get breaking ground for another one out there um, and just continue to grow and build some ricks for us too. Been, but with all that growth, and it is a lot of growth, uh, to it's always a lot of growth to add a rick house, let alone any more than that i'm still looking at 10 to 12 barrels a day is that still going to be your your limit for the foreseeable future uh i mean yeah but i mean like i said we always have the ability to increase if you've been down here and see see i've seen our facility at any point in time we can run 24 hours we can put in bigger fermenters um it's just not something that we're interested in doing right now because uh with the way things are we can put out just as much as we want to uh right now Awesome. Well, just a couple of uh, kind of ending questions here that uh, to see the future, <clears throat> excuse me, the future of, of Peerless. One of the other things that um, Elena described was that Peerless overall has a fairly young staff uh, and experienced, sure, but just we're just talking objectively age-wise, a younger staff. And that uh, for her, there was, that gave a lot of excitement in the air and a lot of Oh, I want to try this and things different. I'm curious how you both feel about that. And if you do feel that, how it manifests for you. Um, I think it just manifests in the potential of our distillery. Um, we have room to grow, expand. Um, Carson and Quirky have really given us the ability to feel the freedom to talk to them about whatever we want. Um, we're allowed to share ideas. We're allowed to, we call them our passion projects. We're allowed to come up with different ideas, um, present them to them. And if they're accepted, great. If they're not, we're not mad about it. We just will continue on. We will um, bring it back up when our product is aged more. Um, but yeah, just the ability to actually look to the future and see the possibility of expansion. Um, but we like where we are right now and we have our plan. We got Mike Young in here. So we're really lucky to have him on board. Um, he's looking at the markets right now and just allowing us to gain a visual of where we could expand, where we could grow into more of the U.S. Um, and see where Peerless goes from there. Yeah. And, and Carson has a great way of explaining it too, you know, uh, as Ellie was talking about, you know, we're allowed to have ideas, things like that. And one thing Carson always said, and it's always stuck with me is we may not agree on everything. You know, we're going to disagree on some stuff, but always know we're still going to be friends. At. Like it's just, he knows everyone's so passionate about it and he knows everyone's goal here is to put out the best product forward or in their eyes, what they think the best product will be forward. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, the good thing about our team and why I think we all, we work so well together is, we don't always agree on some stuff, but it's never personal, right? Like we never get mad over it or anything like that. Um, Cause once again, we're all working towards the same goal. And, and that is to put peerless in the best foot forward. With looking to, uh, you know, your own futures at peerless, uh, John, obviously you've got several years under your belt here with several different roles. 
Um, Ellie, you're taking on more responsibility with the distilling side after already being on the, let's say the engineering, the technical side, uh, and, and taking on more of a role after, uh, Caleb's departure. I'm curious to hear both of you describe kind of what you want to leave at the distillery. You know, what, if you foresee a legacy for yourselves at the distillery or what kind of stamp you want to leave, uh, at Peerless. Um, for my eyes, you know, I, I love tasting. Uh, I enjoy the barrel program. Um, but I would say my probably the thing I'm most passionate about is I love the mingling process. Uh, I love creating batches. I love help making the batches. Because um, the way I look at it is these are going out for thousands, millions of people to enjoy all over the place. And I think to me, that means a lot to me knowing that I know it's just whiskey and bourbon. But knowing that you had a hand in the part of making something that someone really enjoys. And uh, I think about all the bottles that I've had that you don't necessarily remember uh, when you opened it, but who you shared it with. So just the fact that there's groups around there popping open one of our batches or single barrels for the first time and sitting around the conversations or whatever was had while enjoying that um, is one of the things. If anything, I want to leave behind is knowing that um, I had a hand in and part of making some of the best product possible here. Mm. Ellie, how about you? Oh, um, I think I just want to leave behind, like, just mostly creating a well-operated system, um, optimizing our process as much as we can. Um, I know our team has worked hard this year and last year on creating an inventory system. So a fully automated and digital inventory system where we can just go and scan a barrel and it will pull up its age, its contents, um, any kind of information you could ever want on the aging of that barrel and the identity of that barrel. So I think just creating the most well-organized process, um, continue adding new valves, new pumps, um, the most optimized, most efficient system we can and just keeping it also even though we are so optimized we do have the most efficient system and we are a lot of us is automated um we still want to keep it traditional so all of our ricking all of our um labor is traditional we keep all of our barrels in our ricks um we're not palletized we like to share our tradition, our family history with everyone and just keep it authentic and keep our quality and our product just how it was. We don't want to expand right now. And that's what I love most about Fearless is we're not afraid to say, yes, we could grow, but do we want to? But we are allowed to just keep our quality the exact same. Awesome. And my very last question, which is the uh, most important one to me, I got to be honest, is will we ever see another rye finished in the Copper and King's absinthe barrels? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, um, maybe, maybe not. Um, we may have something in the works, of, but it's just going to be a very small if we ever do it again. Uh, it's just, we loved it when it came out. It was something new, something exciting. Uh, but once again, we are kosher. So the process of that is mm. we have to steam clean everything if we run absinthe through our line because of the kosher uh, certification that we have. 
And it's not really a huge market for us, like besides Kentucky and a couple of places. Like I said, it's a love or hate. You got to like that black leather snow in order to join the absolute finish. But you never know. Like I said, and I know Ellie's kind of talked about it. Uh, we may say today we're not going to do it anymore. Two weeks from now, Carson may say, you know what? Find some absolute barrels. Let's get this going again. So I always say never say never around here. We laugh about our absinthe because we literally had this discussion like two weeks ago. And it's one of those things where you want to remain friends, but in that situation, you're yelling at each other in a friendly way. Yeah. Um, but you are yelling at each other and half of you want the absinthe and the other half doesn't. Um, and that's okay. We can disagree, um, agree to disagree on whatever we feel most passionate about. But um, I look at it as it's a waste in filters because like John said, we have to remain kosher certified. And when you pump that stuff through a filter, it's going to take over that filter. You're going to, if you use that filter for any other product other than absinthe, that's going to taste like black licorice. And we don't want small batch bourbon to taste like black licorice. So you just have to keep in mind that we have to be kosher. We have to make the adjustments to our system. Um, like John said, we have to steam our lines or we have to hand fill every bottle. And that takes hours and hours of labor. So, so Bali will really hate you when they hear that absent coming along. <laughs> like, uh, we don't have mm -hmm. to do this anymore, do we? So, but uh, yes, we love the absent too. I hear you. I'm, I have a bottle of that absent here. I, drink it straight. I'm a little crazy. I love absinthe period, but the mix of the absinthe and the rye, besides being just so unique uh, and not replicated elsewhere, just, it made it a Sazerac in a glass and it was some, some really good stuff. So everything makes sense as to why you wouldn't want to do it again. I fully hear that it's an incredible pain in the ass and it's uh, especially for the production side. Um, but you know, here's hoping worst case, I'll just make a Sazerac with that and with the peerless rye. So yeah. yeah, but never say never. We might release it. Oh, put me first in line when you do, because I'll buy case <laughs> upon case of it. So <laughs> I know a couple of friends will do the same. So with that, John, Ellie, thank you so much for, for taking the time today to talk a little more about Peerless, uh, get a little more into the production side and some of the nerdier questions that we've been able to ask. Um, as always, there'll be uh, links in the show notes to follow Peerless on all the social media platforms, newsletter to uh, see reviews and other, and of course the, uh, the research that was done for this episode so that you can follow along. And like I said earlier, learn a little more about the history itself. If you're not able to get down to Louisville, if you are able to get down to Louisville and you don't stop there, well, that one's on you, but I hope you do stop by peerless, uh, try the single barrel that they've got out at that time and do a tour and who knows what you'll see and who you'll meet. So with that, uh, we'll close out. It's been another episode of the whispering podcast. Thank you all for listening and Cheers. Cheers. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating and review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderingcom with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedderingring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume under the influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the barrel share club each month. 
BarrelShare Club members get to try products sent to me for review, bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.